We're in the midst of a short series that we've called Spiritual Authority, and we're looking specifically at a Christian view of power, a Christian view of authority, and a Christian view of influence. And we're doing that through the lens of Paul's experience in this church in Corinth that he planted. And years later, he has been writing to them. There's been some rocky things in the church he's been dealing with. And somewhere, somehow, some people have come into the church from the outside and have questioned Paul's authority, significance, role, um, and he's now responding to those criticisms. The passage that we look at this morning is helpful um, in looking specifically at Christian authority. And I want to be really clear here this morning. What we're reading this morning uh, is not merely about religious authority, but Christian authority. And I'll tell you what I mean between the two, okay? If we use the phrase religious authority, then we're going to reduce that down to those of us who become pastors or run some sort of Christian organization or plant a church or maybe, unlikely, but maybe one of us who becomes pope, right? That'd be religious authority. What we're talking about this morning is much broader than that. It's Christian authority, which bleeds outside of the church and Christian proper organizations into any place of authority that is held by a Christian. In other words, Christian authority is not the context of authority this morning. It's the adjective. Okay? It's describing what type of authority are we talking about. Now, why is there such a thing as Christian authority at all? It has to do with who Jesus is and what he's done. And that doesn't come up very much in our passage this morning. And so I wanted to lay a little bit of groundwork before we get into the passage proper. Um, specifically, I want to read to you two passages also found in the New Testament, also found in the letters of Paul, but written to other churches. And both of them are summary statements of the big picture of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Now, some of these in the, some of these in the New Testament are very simple. One of my favorites, also from Paul, is when he says, this statement is trustworthy, that Christ died for sinners of whom I am chief. Okay? That's probably one of the summaries or one of the concepts or the language uh, that we're most familiar with when we answer the question, what has Jesus done for us? He's died in our place. But what Jesus accomplished on the cross is bigger than just the forgiveness of sins. Okay? There's a lot more going on. And so these two passages uh, draw out these realities and especially significantly tie them to concepts of authority. And so I want to read both of them to you. Don't worry about turning there. Just go ahead and listen in. The first one, uh, the first one I want to draw your attention to is in Philippians. We actually read through it last week, but I want to review it. And what's going on here is Paul is actually encouraging the church in Philippi to be like Jesus in the way that they treat one another. Okay? Now notice what he does here. He summarizes the coming of Jesus Christ in this way. <clears throat> he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, do you see how that summary touches on uh, the concept of authority? It begins with Jesus in heaven as equal to God and not seeing that equality and all of its prerogatives as something to be held onto, demanded, but freely lays it down, takes on human flesh, takes on the form of a servant and becomes obedient like a slave, even to the point of death on a cross. And then it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name. What is that? That's a position. So that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, don't overly religiousize that word Lord. Okay? When we read Jesus is Lord in the New Testament, the most common Greek statement made in those times that's parallel to it is Caesar is Lord. Okay? This is a call for allegiance to a different ruler. Jesus is Lord, okay? So it has everything to do with authority, and it's paradoxical. Because in one sense, it elevates Jesus to the greatest position of authority, and in the other sense, we see that how he utilizes that authority is a condescension, a moving downwards, a humbling himself for the sake of others, even to the point of death. We have to keep both of those ideas in mind when we talk about Christian authority. The other passage I want to turn you to is in the book of Colossians. Here in Colossians, uh, Paul is speaking to another church he's planted, this one in Colossae. And he once again gives us a summary of Jesus. And we'll see some overlap with Philippians and we'll see some new concepts. This is what he says in chapter 1, verse 15. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Notice the things on the list. He could have said birds or plants, but what does he say? Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. His illustration here is uh, focused on that. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things that in him and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Once again, the language here is full of this idea of authority. All authority was created by Jesus. All authority was created for Jesus. And not only is he the firstborn of creation, which is talking about the fact that he is the most preeminent Uh, the focal point as our creator, but also he becomes the firstborn from the dead so that he's resurrected, he becomes a man and is resurrected so that he might be preeminent, okay? The focus here is all about authority. This uh, is why we can talk about a concept like Christian authority. When we say Christian authority this morning, we're recognizing that because of these things, because of who Jesus is, and because of what he's done, it changes the way we think about authority. It changes the way we handle authority. Uh, It changes the purpose, even, of authority. I wish we had time to unpack this more, but let me just illustrate very quickly in this way. Consider the reasons why people desire authority. 
I think you can probably think of a few of them. I'm sure you can go beyond the list that I'm going to give you this morning. But it may be, it may be that the reason a person desires authority is because they want freedom. Right? They want to be at the top of the food chain. They want to be their own boss. And therefore, if they can just get in the top position, no one can tell them what to do and they're free to do what they want. Okay? Another one may be that because of uh, because of their own fears or concerns, they desire control. They want to be in charge because they're the only one they trust. Right? I need to be the boss or everything is going to go to hell. Another reason why sometimes people pursue authority is they want the significance or the prestige. I need to be in charge so my life matters. It's not enough to be an entry-level position. If I'm really significant, if my life really has value, then I need to be, you know, at the top. I need to be at the front of my industry. I need to be an influencer, a mover, a shaker. I need to be in charge. There are good reasons as well, but it is amazing how easily those good reasons are hijacked, okay? We may desire to be in a position of authority because significantly we want to do good. There's an objective we want to pursue that is in line with human flourishing. We see our role as serving those who are underneath us for the sake of not just the mission, but for the sake of the body that makes up this organization. Okay? But even there, oftentimes it gets polluted with, for example, I want to accomplish my mission, however it's defined. As Christians, Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Okay? There's a reorientation. Now, I could sketch from all of those places through the transition of the gospel into a new trajectory, but we kind of just have to leave it there this morning. I just want you to recognize that all of those are significantly invalidated or transformed by the passages we just read. Okay? Now, in Paul's circumstances, back in 2 Corinthians, we're actually dealing with Paul's authority in question. There's a power struggle going on for the church in Corinth. And so as Paul <coughs> is forced to defend himself and his ministry, he starts to touch on significantly the contrast between his authority, which we'll use this shorthand for this morning and call it Christian, and the authority of these outliers which is significantly different. Okay. Read with me, starting in verse 7. Once again, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that when we say by letter what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit to help us understand your word. I pray, God, that you would not just give us insight and understanding to what these words mean, but insight and understanding into where it touches our own lives. 
as many of us hold positions of authority, ranging from high to low. We are parents and teachers. Uh, we have positions in our employ where there are people under us. Uh, we may aspire towards more authority in the terms of politics. We may have roles in our church uh, or in our family. There are so many places where authority touches. And so I pray, God, that you instruct us on how to rightly see and hold authority. We ask that our authority, everywhere it works out in our life, would be to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> now, verse 7, where we begin, uh, can be read two different ways. In fact, if you have a different translation than the one I'm reading this morning, most likely it reads different than mine. Mine says, look at what is before your eyes. Okay? If I could paraphrase, Paul is saying, consider the facts. It's right in front of you. Open your eyes. But another way that this verse may be translated is, why are you looking at appearances? And I know that sounds like two completely different things. Greek grammar is sometimes a little bit ambiguous. Both of them make sense to the, context, uh, to the context. The majority position in most translations of the scripture is actually that one. Why are you only looking at appearances? Now, real quickly, let me just lay out the evidence for the other side, even though that's the way we're going to read it this morning. For Paul here to say, look at the facts, and then say, if anyone considers himself in Christ, then we must be also, makes logical sense. What he's saying is, open your eyes. How can you question, I'm really working for Jesus, when I'm the one who brought you to Jesus? Okay? Don't saw off the branch you're sitting on. It may be that's his argument, but I'm drawn to the other one, because the broader context has to do with appearances. We'll see this next week. We saw it last week. And so um, the first thing we need to notice about authority here is that it's not about appearances, that it, authority doesn't get its power from the way things look. Okay, I'll show you what I mean. Notice uh, the complaint that they make about Paul in verse 10. They say his le letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Why do they question Paul's authority? Because he's unimpressive. Here's a concern I have about our modern day and age. We are so anti-authority that we have a tendency to take anything that's uh, systematic, anything that's established, anything that's structural, and resist it, and assume that that somehow gives us freedom. Okay, And so we distance ourselves from, uh, from actual offices of authority. We seek to free ourselves from those things, and we assume that that means that we are now self-made people who are free from the authority of others. But I will tell you the problem with that. It doesn't remove authority. Authority is essential to human life. It's what makes community possible. Okay? If you're an individual living on a desert island, you don't need any authority. You don't need to hold it, and you don't need anyone to hold it over you. As soon as you involve other people, authority is part of what makes that possible and positive, okay? Now, can it be abused? Of course it can, like every other tool. But, um, but authority, from a biblical posture, is something that's God-given and good and given for good reason, okay? Now, <clears throat> as soon as we say that, 
my concern, like I said, is that what happens in our modern world when we're so resistant to authority and think that we can free ourselves from these structures is that we actually just push authority into the shadow. And then it functions without visibility. The value of the way authority structures work in a democratic society is that they're transparent, at least hopefully, that they can be held accountable, that there's checks and balances and multiple people involved, okay? That's the general reason why we're resistant to a monarchy, lack of oversight, okay? The problem is, here is the primary authority in our times, speaking out of my opinion, not word of God truth, but this is my perspective. It's talking heads. People align themselves with voices, and they do not recognize those voices as authorities, but that's exactly how they operate. They shape our opinions, they shape our decisions, they shape our politics. What are the credentials of these talking heads? Too often it's these things, it's appearances. They're persuasive, they're impressive, they're loud, right? Just... Think about the other side politically. I can say that because you guys might be on different sides, but there's still another side, and the complaint applies to both of them. And think about these people that you see sometimes, and you're like, how can anyone agree with this person? He doesn't have any credentials. He has no history in these things. Think of reality TV and how when people make it in reality TV, suddenly we care what they think on all sorts of issues. Really? Do we really? Anyway, here's, here's the point. Do not be fooled into thinking that you are not subject to this, that you are not liable to this. Some of you have even tasted this in the context of your own Christian experiences. Somebody who is loud and impressive, persuasive, charismatic, doesn't necessarily evidence authority. In contrast, here's Paul, totally unimpressive. There's a book that's written about 200 AD, so 100 years after the life of Paul. It gives us a physical description of Paul, and this is what it says. It says that he was short in stature, that he was bow-legged, that he had a monobrow, and that when he spoke, it was, it was squeaky and almost annoying, okay? This is the description given of the Apostle Paul, and it is so bad probably true, right? Remember, this is written by a Christian in 200 AD. He may hold Paul in high regard, but this is what he's heard about the Apostle Paul. This is what his great-great-grandfather told him about the Apostle Paul, okay? When we read the books of First and Second Corinthians and a few of the other New Testament books, it resonates with what Paul says. It resonates with his reputation. He's tremendously unimpressive, but authority is not found in appearances, notice what he says again there in verse uh, 7. Look at what's before your eyes. If anyone's confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Now, when he's saying they're in Christ, he's probably using it in two different ways. It can be read two different ways in the Greek. One is, I'm a Christian. I belong to Christ. The other is, I speak for Christ. I represent Christ. Most likely, he's actually using it in both categories. The criticism that these, uh, that these critics were making to try and undermine Paul's authority was not, I don't even think he's a Christian. It was, 
I'm not sure he really represents Jesus, that he speaks for Jesus, that he's an apostle. That was their criticism, okay? But he says here to the church in Corinth, the demon, <coughs> excuse me, the demonstration of my authority as an apostle is you. Earlier in the letter, he puts it this way. He says, look, I know these guys may come with letters of commendation, references. He says, you're my letter of commendation. Paul planted this church. Now, I want to be very careful here because when we say that Christian authority is made visible by results, we have to recognize uh, that there's a lot of terrible things that happen in large numbers. There's a lot of things that look really big and are nothing but false and empty. Okay? So don't hear results as if the bottom line pragmatism of Christianity is if, if the church is big, then you must be of God. If the business is successful, then it must be God's blessing. No, 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 that's not what I mean. What I mean is uh, probably communicated best by uh, the pastor who mentored me, Dave Sprinkle. He had this saying every once in a while, he'd come into the junior high room where we were working, and he'd say, where are my people, for I am their leader. <laughs> if you have to ask that question, you have no authority, right? And, and that's the thing is, it's not just if people will follow you, but with Paul, his commission is demonstrated in the fact that he went out and did it. This church exists. Paul's commission was go out, proclaim Jesus, plant churches, and he's done that across the Roman Empire. You know the saying, those who can't do teach or coach if you're in the sports world? That's not a proper understanding of Christian authority. Okay? The way that calling works, as we'll see in a second, doesn't reduce down to appearances or persuasiveness or what things look like on the outside. We have to look deeper than that, and one of the places we should look is in the fruit of ministry. Jesus actually gives this as a way to distinguish the difference between true prophets and false prophets. He says, beware of false prophets who look like sheep outwardly, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Beware of appearances. Beware of just what things appear like. And he says, instead, you will know them by their fruit. Does a thorn, bro- a thorn bush produce grapes? Does a grape bush produce thorns? The results matter. And the results, from a Christian perspective, have to be are we seeing people who are growing more like Jesus? Okay. And so Paul says, the better you view yourselves and your own discipleship and where you are, the more you have to recognize the validity of my ministry. Okay. But there's another aspect about authority that we need to recognize here. And it comes in verse 8. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave me for building up and not destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Now, first off, a word. When he says, when I boast a little too much of our authority, that doesn't sound like something that's actually happening. That's probably, once again, a criticism of Paul. And so I want you to notice how these critics are working the Apostle Paul. On one hand, they're saying, he's clearly not in power, doesn't have any authority, because he's so weak in presence. He's so unimpressive. On the other hand, they say, on top of that, he boasts about his authority all the time. Which is it? 
Paul's caught in either trap. And so he's going to go on to boast, okay? In about a month, we'll get into a series called Humble Brag, and we'll see what Paul does with boasting. Um, but it's very different. It's very different than how it operates in the lives of these other leaders. But when he says here, even if I boast a little too much of our authority, he says, even if I have to talk about it, even if I have to remind you of my role in your life, he says, I'm willing to do it, and I will not be ashamed. Okay. Now, what's going on here? The first thing you need to understand is when Paul says, I will not be ashamed, he's not talking about merely, I'm not going to shake in my boots. You know, I, this isn't a Beyonce anthem. Okay, that's, that's my point. It's not about his posture or his stance. When Paul talks about being ashamed in the New Testament, almost always he's looking forward to the day when he will stand before Jesus. Shame in the, in the, the Apostles' Paul mind has to do with eschatology. I'll give you another passage that shows this, okay? In Romans chapter 5, Paul is talking about hope. And he says that the suffering in the life of, of the Christian is productive because it produces, 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 it goes down the line, and he says, and that leads us to hope. And he says that hope will not, some of your translations say disappoint us, but what it literally is, that hope will not put us to shame. It's a hope we can trust in. We won't be embarrassed at the finish line to go, oh, I got it totally wrong. What a waste of time. In the same way here, what he's saying is, even if I have to assert my authority, even if I have to remind you of it, one day I'm going to stand before Jesus and I won't be embarrassed that I brought it up. What's he implying? He's appointed. The authority he has is not claimed for himself. And this is the second thing we need to understand about Christian authority. It's all in one little verb here. Read again with me. Verse 8, even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave. Gave. For a Christian, authority is given and not taken. And that is always true. Now, I want to be really clear here, because when I said that to myself this morning, I heard it through my normal American lens, and what I heard was, given by those you were in authority over. Right? Isn't that an American thought? That... You're only in charge because we put you there. I'd make a reference to the who, but you probably wouldn't get it. But it's that idea. We put you on the stage. We can take you down. We put you up ahead of us. We can tear you down. We're revolutionaries, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I want to be especially clear. This is not the fact that you cannot lead someone who doesn't give you the option to lead. It is you cannot be in authority unless God gives it to you. What we read in Colossians this morning is that the only way we understand any position of authority in our lives or the lives of others, doesn't matter if it's political or structural within a school system or in the family setting, uh, in any aspect, especially the church, but everywhere else, we only understand that authority as being delegated, not ultimate. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO. It doesn't matter if you're the senior pastor. It doesn't matter if you're the father or the mother. Every one of those positions is under authority. And specifically, as we saw in Colossians, at the top of the line, under the authority of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, that requires some nuance. Because there's a lot of ways we could think about this that are true, but they're true in different ways. 
the New Testament maintains that we as Christians should submit ourselves to political and public authorities because authority comes from God. Now, there are limitations to that. All authority has limitations, side note, except for Jesus's, okay? Just to illustrate, a teacher has authority over your life, in the classroom, in your education, but not in your free time, not in your house. A politician, a president, government has authority over your life, but not your private life, your public life, okay? All authority has those limitations, and all authority has limitations when they operate outside the confines of their limitations. That's why the apostles can take the Sanhedrin, who are their religious authorities in Judaism, and say, you're going to have to tell us if it's better to obey God than man. Okay? There is such a thing as Christian rebellion. Side note, it always looks different because it's submissive rebelliousness. Okay? It doesn't spit in the face of the cop. It goes to prison singing praises. It's willing to endure punishment, but it does endure punishment. Okay. Now, the second thing I want to recognize this morning when we talk about given authority is when we're talking about something so significant as God-given authority, the first thing we think of, and rightly so, is abuse. Right? People can claim this authority and ruin lives. And we should be aware of that. But I also want you to recognize that you may see that, especially if you're not a Christian this morning, you may see that as an evidential negative of religion. One of religion's greatest problems is that it wrecks other people's lives because it claims a divine authority. There's another side of the coin which you need to consider. If authority is given, it's accountable. It's accountable. Okay. This is the reason why Lenin and Stalin and Mussolini combined have committed the greatest atrocities of human history. Okay, Beating out any religious persecution you'd like to lay your finger on. Because they were at the top and no one would hold them accountable. Chesterton says this. He says Lenin almost got it right when he said that religion is the opiate of the people. He said actually it's non-religion that's the opiate of the people. Because we will find something to worship. And generally, in the absence of God, we will worship power. And by nature, the most powerful thing will be government. He says, but if we worship God, then we can hold government accountable. Okay. And then in the long run, accountability, that's also true. That if, if a position is given, that at the assessment on the final day, the same one Paul says he will not be ashamed before, God is going to hold accountable every oppressive authority, every usurper, conqueror, terrorist, tyrant. But another way we need to think about this given that's also true, although it's a different nuance, because the recognition there is that all authority positions are God-given. What people do with those positions may or may not be godly but they will be held accountable. The second thing you need to think about is, as a Christian, you have to watch out for ambition. And the desire to be in charge is not the same thing as, as what we're talking about this morning. Okay. Now, there's a caveat there. I know this is a nuance on a nuance. Forgive me. There's a caveat there. This is what it says about pastoral leadership in the pastoral epistles. 
he that desires to be a pastor desires a good thing. Okay? Now, when you hear the word pastor, you should think authority. That's part of what it means. That authority operates in a specific sense and in particular ways and directly in line of Christ so that, in fact, do you know where we get the word pastor? We get it from shepherds. Pasture is what you should think of, okay? A pastoral leadership is a shepherd leadership. And so this is what Peter says. He says there's really only one true shepherd and we are his under shepherds. Okay? Even that has to keep in mind. But back to the nuance. This is the point. Desiring to be in authority is sometimes... God's leading. It can be for good reasons. Okay? If authority is understood in the way that Jesus put it, we always desire it for the sake of others and not for ourselves. Okay? So Jesus says, you know that the Gentile nations lord authority over one another, but not so with you. If anyone desires to be the greatest, he will become the least and the servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there is a good desire for authority, but even that good desire doesn't justify the taking of it. it. Doesn't justify the stepping into the position. And this is true, once again, not just of pastors. Those of you who are uh, thinking about pursuing a higher level of leadership in your businesses, in your place of work, those of you who are after a place of political influence, if you're a Christian, you have to go, is this where God is leading me? Is this where God is taking me? Opportunity and possibility isn't enough justification for Christian decision-making. We have to seek the Lord. Is this something I'll take for myself, or is this something I'm being given? In fact, oftentimes, when God gives, there's reluctance. Moses says, me? Jeremiah says, who? Gideon says, huh? Right? This is a standard pattern when God calls people to big things. We need to be critical of our own desires. We need to recognize that we're fully capable of taking what is not given to us. And so we need to seek and we need to ask. And when we step into positions of influence in other people's lives, we need to be very open-handed and say, okay, Lord, if I'm getting this wrong, remove me from office. Christian authority must be given and not taken. And with that, once again, comes accountability. And here's the point. Even when we find ourselves in positions of authority, and this is true at every level, I'll illustrate it as a parent. Sometimes I enjoy way too much privilege of that. I justify my own behavior or exceptions to my behavior or privileges because I'm a parent. So it's fine. For Jesus, authority was expressed in the laying down of privileges. In fact, in the laying down of his very life, in bleeding out for the sake of those he was serving. And so we have to watch out because what happens is the world forces on us the privileges of our office, the prestige, the glory, and then it justifies it and says, you've earned this, you deserve this, you don't have to live like other people. There's always a danger in that. And the best remedy for that is recognizing the fact that 
uh, what God, God calls his servants to is faithfulness. And any fringe benefit of your particular office in life will never live up to the well-done, good and faithful servant that Jesus promises. Every decrying of privilege is an opportunity to invest deeper in faithfulness. That's why Paul doesn't take a paycheck at the church in Corinth. He says, it is an opportunity for me to do more, to accomplish more, for my life to be more significant. So, it's not measured in outward appearance, but in true God-given results. Okay? In fact, a lot of times the way we discern our authority is we look around and, and there's people. You know, we don't necessarily go, I want to be a father so I can boss somebody around so we have a kid. But if you have a child, you are a parent now. A good deal of calling just drops in our lap. And sometimes we're just nose to the grindstone doing something and we look behind us and people are following us. That can look like this. Okay? <clears throat> Second, it's given and not taken. Okay? Third, and this is reaching back into what we said last time, it's powerful, but not in the usual, usual ways. And so they make this complaint. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. What are they saying? They're saying his authority doesn't even look like authority. It's not impressive. It's not powerful. It's not loud. It's not forceful. Sometimes the reluctance we find in positions of authority is because we go, but I'm not strong enough. But I, you know, I don't like public speaking or... Uh, you know, I don't like... There's so many things we can add to this list. Um, none of those things limited the Apostle Paul. In fact, he's going to go on in the chapters forward, and he's going to say, actually, that weakness was to the advantage because it gave a place for God to work. What we are talking about this morning, when we tie everything to Jesus, is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not just what happens on Sundays and in our home groups. The kingdom of God is happening in your workplace. It's happening on your campus. Your life is expressing an alignment and a proclamation and an invitation into the kingdom of God, and it involves all of these things. But the way that the kingdom of God is built is different. It's not with a muscle flex. It's not with a bullhorn. He says, reaching back into verse 4, chapter 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's not about rhetoric. It's not even about talent. It's about the simple proclamation of God's word. That's why when Paul comes to Corinth, he looks around and he sees the primary expressions of authority, power, and influence in Corinth are all about public speaking, all about impressive speeches, all about persuasion. And he goes, intentionally, I'm going to do something different. I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I just stuttered. I just stumbled. 
so that in the weakness of my presentation, you would encounter the powerfulness of the God I present. Part of that has to do with the purpose of authority. Did you catch it back in verse 8? Lest I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you. Building you up and not destroying you. Now, I want to be clear here, because some of you who are more Bible-minded, uh, I'm about to say that that's the general purpose of authority, and you're going to go, what, what about Jeremiah? I know that's only a few of you Bible nerds, but that's interesting, because Paul is clearly drawing his language from the calling of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, God calls this young man, probably a late teen, and says, you're my prophet. And then he says, this is what I'm calling you to do. I'm sending you to the nations to pluck up, to tear down, to build and to plant. Do you see how those metaphors come out here? Not for destroying you, but for building you up. In fact, he uses it again at the end of 2 Corinthians. Sometimes I think you can tell what a Bible author is reading by the way that he writes. And I would suggest to you that's one of these occasions. Here he is. Remember Jeremiah's ministry? Jeremiah is this prophet that nobody believes, that nobody accepts. The end of his ministry is jailed by his own people, okay? And then sawn in half by his own people. He doesn't look successful. Could you see why that would resonate with Paul? So why doesn't he emphasize here the tearing down? Why does he say it's for the sake of building up? Two reasons. First off, there is such a thing as a call that is prophetic, which is a stand to challenge positions of authority, to stand against them. It is a rare calling and one that you shouldn't enter into assuming, I think, I think this is what God wants me to do. Okay. Study all the callings of the Old Testament and the New. They all have this one thing in common. Every one of them is convinced. We never see Jeremiah going, I don't know if God really called me. Even Jonah goes, I know what you're calling me to do. I'm not doing it. Right? Moses tries to fight his calling We see all that, but not one of them questions it. But on top of that, even with Jeremiah, why is he to tear down so that he could build? Why is he to pluck up so that he can plant? The second thing we see here, and this is what Paul gets right, is even when there's a little bit of demolition, it's for the sake of rebuilding. He's just said he's going to tear down strongholds. That's building, not destroying. Its end is building, and for many of us, when we think of authority, we think of authority primarily in destructive terms, to tear apart. Now, notice the subtle critique he's making here of his enemies. Paul says for the church in Corinth, earlier in his letters, I'm the master builder. I came and I built, and I laid a foundation, and others will build upon it. But what are these people doing? They're coming in and they're dividing and they're destroying, and they're picking apart. He's giving a subtle reminder here that the whole point of the apostolic authority that Paul has given is to build something. Sometimes it's called the house of God. Sometimes it's called the temple of God. Sometimes it's called the body of God. All of those metaphors he uses to imply strengthening and growing and building, not destroying. 
Like I said, it may be that he's building a building and he recognizes that a wing that was built off one side is precarious, built wrongly, and needs to be disassembled. But the goal is a remodel, not a demolition. And I would say, in general, in general, this is true of all expressions of authority. If you were a parent this morning, that is for the sake of building up your kids. Here's the point. Authority, biblically, is not a privilege but a responsibility. That's implied by the idea of accountability. And the responsibility is for the sake of those you are over. Okay? This is a place where capitalism often gets it wrong. It says, I will make my employees bleed for the sake of my customer or, e or, customer, or even worse, for the sake of my investors. No, to build. To build. Let me illustrate one more way and then we'll get on to our last point. I used to have a lot of conversations with other people who were involved in ministry about the tensions between loving your family and loving your church. And I've seen people err on both sides. I've seen people who go, look, God has given you this church. Your kids are not as important. I've seen all of these things. And one day I was thinking through these things, and what I realized was in both positions, in both positions, there's a need for sacrifice. But in both positions, we're the ones on the altar. We don't put our kids on the altar for the sake of the church nor do we put our church on the altar for the sake of our kids. If you're serving God in ministry, like I am, if you're a pastor, you put yourself on the altar. You bleed for them both. Those are the ways that Paul talks about both roles. He says, husbands, you're to love and die for your family. He says, I, as a pastor, have been poured out like a drink offering on the altar for you, church. Okay? Um, let's look at the last point here. <clears throat> so they complain that his speech is of no account, even though his, his letters are really impressive. What they're talking about specifically here is that he's warning them what's going to happen. And they go, look, he didn't even deal with this in purpose or in person. It's, he's like a dog who's got a loud bark at a distance, but you get close and just hides in the cabinet, Okay. That's the idea. That's the complaint they make about Paul. But notice what he says in 11. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. He says that's one way to read the situation. But when he says this word understand, it's legesomai. It's where we get our word logic. He's saying reason this out. Consider the facts. And he says, if I'm saying when I get there I'm going to do these things, that's not the same as, you know, lobbing grenades from a distance. Here's the last point I want to make about Christian authority. Christian authority does not threaten, but it does warn. Now, at the risk of splitting hairs this morning, vocabulary-wise, I think there is a discernible difference between the word threaten and warn. There's a lot of semantic overlap. They're, they're true, but there are some things that are true of threatening that are never true of warning. Okay? Or I should say there are some things that are always true of threatening uh, that don't have to be true of warning. Okay? Here's the point. If you threaten, it's about your action. Right? If you threaten someone, this is what I'm going to do. That's not always true of warning, is it? When you warn somebody, 
you're saying this is what's going to happen. It may or may not involve you. It focuses on consequence, not on vengeance. Focuses not on the personal, even though the personal might be part of it. If Paul comes and operates in his authority, he's going to be involved in this, okay? Take parenting once again, okay? There's a reason why honor your father and mother makes it into the Ten Commandments. It's a stand-in for all expressions of authority. That's how the Jews have read it since its inception, okay? We honor our government because we honor our father and mother. Why? Because when you're born, your first full expression of authority is your parents, okay? And so it's a placeholder. It's broader than it sounds. But take parental authority, okay? Parents are called to warn and not threaten. Threats have to do with my endgame. Threats have to do with my reputation. Threats have to do with fear, getting results no matter what. Okay. Notice what Paul said, verse 9, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. I'm not trying to scare you into obedience. I'm scared for you. Do you understand the difference? That's the difference between a threat and a warning. Okay. When Paul warns, he warns them with tears. Read the first half of the book. When Paul warns, his greatest concern is not him at all, but them. They may sound the same. They may use the different, different words. But if the goal is the building up and not tearing down, if it's Christ-given authority, it's going to be aware of the fact that there are consequences and risks and dangers. It's going to be faithful to warn. And guys, this is something that we as Christians have got to recover. We're living in a time where, uh, where people are so anti-threat that the church is becoming silent. We live in a time that's so full of conflict, Christians are rightly recognizing that we carry a message of peace and reconciliation and we can avoid a lot of that and that a lot of times we've been on the wrong side of the issue. But out of love, we must learn to warn. Authority, Christ-like, Christ-given, in reference to Christ, authority warns because, because there really are consequences. And so Paul does that. He doesn't just write off the church and go, this fight is not worth fighting. Absolutely it's worth fighting. He loves these people. He cares for them. But we always have to watch out for that sense in ourselves where what offends us the most is that they've broken our rules, that they've offended our kingdom, that they've denied our will. Even when we go in reconciliation, we go with confrontation. But we can only do that when we've repented of our own self-centered kingdoms. That's why Paul doesn't threaten, because he's got nothing to lose. The loss he feels is for them. So, this is just a glimpse into what Christian authority looks like. And I want to just, in summary, point out to you that it looks like Jesus. Right? If we walk back through this, what do we see with Jesus? That appearances can be deceiving. Here is Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's humble and hungry and poor and weak and dying and dead. But that's not the whole story. 
and his calling is demonstrated in the things that he did with his life and the fact that we are here today. How do we know that Jesus is Lord? Because Jesus is alive. How do we know that Jesus is alive? Because we are here. We are part of that product. We are part of that consequence. When we look at Jesus, it changes the way we think about about the purpose of authority. Because Jesus is the one true faithful servant who's also the one true king. Who took his authority and utilized it at great cost to himself for the sake of those he loves. We never think of Jesus being intimidating, do we? But he definitely warned. His teachings are full of very serious warnings. But even when he goes into the temple and he drives them out, he does it with patience and thoughtfulness. He doesn't fly off the handle. He warns them. He goes, don't you understand where you're doing this? This is my father's house. He's called it to be a house of prayer, and you've made a den of thieves. One of the things we don't always get is when Jesus talks to his enemies, he talks on their behalf. When he says to Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Do you read that as some sort of spiteful, I knew you were this type of person? Or is what it is a final opportunity for repentance? And then lastly, because Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, every posture, every position of authority you have is in direct relationship to him, under him, accountable to him, reporting to him, seeking his leading for the sake of his kingdom, his will, and his glory. One of the greatest mistakes the church could make in our times would be to run from positions of authority, not just inside the church, but outside, to say, forget it, politics is raging too hot, let's not be politicians. Say, forget it, the schools have gone crazy, let's not be teachers. Nor should we think that the way to success is to negate authority, to equalize. Jesus says this at the end of his ministry, speaking to his disciples, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in my name and teaching them all the things that I commanded you. We have been given authority. Let's pray. Father, you have called us into the kingdom of God and you've given us position in the kingdom of God as your ambassadors, as your representatives. And the field of your influence is wide, Lord. It touches our Monday through Friday. It touches our dinner table. It touches every aspect, Lord. And one of the ways that runs through the whole thing is the authority that God is God and he's called us to rule for him. I pray, Lord, first and foremost for us as a church that you would open our eyes to the place you've already given us, to the authority we already have. 
And second, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes to what that should look like and how we tie that into who you are. And I pray against ambition, Lord. Selfishness. Pride. All of these things that take authority and make it ours for our use at the expense of others. And I instead, Lord, ask that you would fill us with the humility that sees ourselves as representatives of Jesus Christ with a God-given job to do, to do at the cost of our own lives for the sake of others to the glory of God. Help us in this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.